0: Well, good morning, Church of the City. Okay, there's three people in the room, it sounds like. Good morning. Sorry, I know that's, I, I come from a line of preachers, and every time my dad did that, you, you met my dad last week, I'd say, Dad, why are you doing this? But once you get up here, no one even says good morning. It's a little bit, I don't know, it, it does something to you. So thanks, to those of you who, who responded. Uh, we're starting a new series this morning, as has been mentioned a couple of times And I'm always excited when we start a new series, but I'm very excited for this. And I want to begin this new series, the first message of this new series, with a story, okay? Uh, Go back with me in your minds. The year is 1961, okay? 1961. The date is May 25th. President John F. Kennedy, JFK, is making a speech before Congress, okay? Now, his presidency is only about five months old at this point, but already he's had some somewhat uh, disastrous kind of failures um, you know, on his watch, if you will. The two biggest of these being that the Soviets had sent the first man into space. They had won that part of the space race. Secondly, shortly after that, was this operation in Cuba, what, what we've come to call the Bay of Pigs, right, which was a real embarrassment for the United States. And so leading up to this speech before Congress, the historical records now show us, uh, President Kennedy was sort of asking his advisors, was polling them a little bit, of uh, things that they thought would get the American people sort of excited. Now the favorable favorable, favorable, uh, take on this is that President Kennedy wanted to, you know, encourage the American people after they had uh, experienced that, you know, sort of defeat, Uh, by the Soviets sending the first uh, person into space. The uh, less charitable take on it would be that President Kennedy was trying to sort of uh, shift the focus off of himself and these perceived failures of his administration. And so he asks some of his advisors, what are some things that would really get the American people excited? And so then he comes to Congress, May 25th, 1961, and gives this speech. It's a long speech. It's about 45 minutes. And one article that I read reminded me that there were no teleprompters in these days. And actually, the picture of him giving this speech, he has a binder in front of him, and it was 81 pages, this speech. 81 pages of printed text. Then it's towards the end of this speech that he moves into a new topic, and it's space. And the quote that is remembered from this speech, he gives right near the end of this 45-minute time. He says this, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. Now, we know that this happened, and so we look back and maybe we think, oh, neat, but this was a surprise, okay, when President Kennedy said this. Certainly a surprise to the American people, but we've learned over time that it was largely a surprise even to those working within NASA, okay? President Kennedy kept the group pretty tight of who he said, you know, should I say this or should I not say this? And so largely it was a surprise even to those working in NASA at the time. And what's even more interesting is it was a surprise, and at that moment, even those working in NASA had no idea how they were going to meet this goal, or even if it was possible. Now, uh, again, History tells us that many of them were excited that he said this because it kind of lit a fuse, right? It got, it it rallied NASA, it got them funding, it got the American people excited, but that does not change the fact that they still had no idea how they were going to do this. And he put a timeline on it, right? Before the decade is out. What on earth, no pun intended, does that have to do, get it because we're talking about NASA and SpaceX, what on earth? What on earth does that have to do with our topic this morning? I'm I'm hilarious, I know, guys. It's it's the dad humor. Um, We're going to talk about how I think this relates to our message in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, I'd invite you to pause. We do this every morning. Consider how you're feeling. We're actually going to come back to this space of just pausing and listening, seeing if the Spirit wants to say anything to us at the end. But I want us to do it at the start now as well, okay? So take a moment, take a few deep breaths, Uh, consider how you're feeling, I will pray, and then we'll continue on. Jesus, I pray that uh, as we spend this time together this morning and as we go from here, that we would have a new uh, or perhaps a, a reignited excitement for actually following you. That that would not just be something that we say, but something that is worked out in our lives pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, what does that story that I just told have to do with today's topic? If you've been around the last few weeks, you've heard the the title of the series, you might see it on the screen there, Following Jesus, the subtitle, Everyday Rhythms for Deep Communion. Following Jesus, Everyday Rhythms for Deep Communion. Where do we get this title from? Well, If you've been here any length of time, actually if you were paying attention in the last uh, three or four minutes, you heard Sierra say that we have a vision as a church uh, of in Guelph as it is in heaven. There's a longer form for that vision, but that vision pairs with our mission. How we believe we're going to sort of see that vision accomplished. And that, we short form very often, and you hear it said almost every week here at Reunion, is following Jesus together in Guelph. The longer form of our our mission statement is this, we are a family of missional communities who exist to love God, love our city, and invite others to follow Jesus with us. Now I would say that both of these things, that short form following Jesus together in Guelph, and that longer statement could be even summarized further into one word. It's a word that gets thrown around in Christian circles often, and sometimes we get the sense it means different things in different places, but the word is discipleship. Discipleship. That's, I believe, this idea of following Jesus in our everyday lives. It's loving God, loving our city, and inviting others to follow him with us. It's following Jesus together in Guelph. Discipleship. When we talk about discipleship, though, I would guess that we have some NASA employees in the room. Not literally uh, any NASA employees, although if you are, I'd love to talk to you. Your work seems fascinating to me. What I mean when I say that is that I would guess, I would strongly suspect, that some of you sit and hear us say, following Jesus together, week after week, you know, you you hear talk of discipleship, and you think, that sounds wonderful. I don't know how to do it. I'm so excited when I hear you talk about that, Spencer, but I do not know where to start. Where would I begin? What would that actually look like in my life? And where we might depart from that analogy a little bit, I think everyone in NASA recognized that after President Kennedy said that, they had to do it somehow. Where we might differ a little bit is when you sit here week after week, month after month, maybe even year after year, hearing myself and others talk about following Jesus, talk about discipleship, you hear that for so long and you think, I don't know how to do it, such that it, you get to the place where you think, well, it must be optional. It must be something that, hey, if it happens, great, but if not, that's okay. Let me say this at the outset. I believe that having a deeper relationship with Jesus little bit deeper, day by day, month by month, looking more like him, a little bit, each year, that that's not only possible for every Christian, I actually believe, friends, that that is the point of the Christian life, that that is the point of the Christian life. In other words, uh, sorry, to forget about this fact, okay, that that's the point of the Christian life, to forget about this aspect of salvation, And to start thinking that God's only concerned with our attendance in heaven, not our existence here on earth, that's to misunderstand the gospel entirely, I would say. Dallas Willard, as he uh, so often did, says this far better than than I can. I'll read read you a quote. I think it's going to be on the screen. One who really understands who Jesus is, sees their own situation in a realistic light and wants to take measures to remedy their condition by staying as close to Jesus as possible. And, and he summarizes this beautifully in this last sentence. Discipleship is a natural part of confidence in Jesus as he really is. So, before we go any further, let me say this as simply as I can. Being with Jesus and becoming like him is God's desire for every one of his children, for every one of his children. So then we get to this thorny question of how do we do this? What does that look like? Well, to give an overly obvious answer, you need a plan. You need a plan to look more like Jesus, to follow him closely, to have a deeper communion with him. You need some sort of plan. And that's how we arrive at the title of this week's message. If you follow us on social media, you see those titles come out a little bit in advance. We titled this morning, A Rule of Life. And this is an interesting term. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. But it's simply a term that's been used for uh, centuries, really, um, to describe really just that, Christian's plan, uh, the, the plan of a disciple of Jesus for following him, okay? We'll come back to this term in a minute, this rule of life term. But before we go further, I would guess, as we begin to think about how we do this, how we follow Jesus, what discipleship actually looks like, and I say, well, you need a plan. I would imagine there are some of us in the room who think, Spencer, I have tried. I've tried. I've put little plans together. Maybe you've done that at this time of year in the past, right? As January rolls around, you think, this is the year I'm going to read the Bible. This is the year I'm going to spend... Uh, uh, an hour in prayer a day I'm going to make it happen you've tried creating some sort of plan with different spiritual disciplines and you've maybe found really mixed results some things kind of worked and some other things didn't and the whole thing was maybe a little bit frustrating so what's the answer then is it just well you need to try harder you need to try harder I don't think that is the answer So I want us to zoom out for a second, because in the coming weeks, we're gonna talk about some of the practices, some of the rhythms that Christians have used throughout the centuries for making their plan for following Jesus. Uh, Habits that that Christians have injected into their daily lives, maybe into their week, into the month, the year, whatever it may be. But we need to talk this morning about some sort of governing principles for this whole idea of a rule of life. And I wanna start, by exploring uh, three elements. I think, friends, that successful, um, we can call successful, but to actually see fruitful uh, transformation in our lives, to actually see us looking more like Jesus through this plan, it needs to exist sort of at the, the intersection of three things. Three elements need to come together in order for us to actually experience transformation, okay? The three things are this, and I I made them into three D's for you, okay? Because I care about you. Number one, desire. Number two, discipline. And number three, divine help. Desire, discipline, and divine help. Let's talk about each of these quickly, okay? Number one, desire. The first ingredient necessary for us to grow in our love for and to grow in our likeness to Jesus is considering our desires, now, stay with me, because some of you, for some of you, this feels really counterintuitive. You might be sitting there thinking, Spencer, our desires are irrelevant. You know, that's all right brain sort of stuff, emotions, feelings, all of that. And to really grow in our discipleship, that's a, a left brain exercise. It's, it's knowing more about who God is, understanding my own sin better. I don't, don't, don't get me wrong, I think those things are, are valuable. Um, understanding God better, understanding ourselves better, being in the scriptures. But that's not all that the Christian life is about. I think God cares about what goes on on the other side of our brains as well. Maybe, maybe you don't think our desires are irrelevant. Maybe you'd go a step further and say, actually, Spencer, I think our desires, my desires at least, are dangerous. They're what gets me into trouble. And in fact, maybe you've read... You know, the passage that Jerusha just read for us a few minutes ago is out of the book of James. Maybe you've read that letter, and you remember that early on, James does say, in fact, but each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And you say, aha, Spencer, we shouldn't be focusing on our desires. We should be uh, extinguishing them. That's the first step in discipleship. If you are thinking any of these thoughts, our desires are irrelevant, or maybe they're even dangerous. I would point to a question that we see Jesus asking over and over. If you've read the Gospels, uh, really any sort of amount of time, if you've gone through them at all, you've likely seen this question in one or, other, one or another form that Jesus asked. It. The question was some form of, what do you want? What do you want? He sometimes asked it just that simply, what do you want to someone who came to him. Sometimes he said, what are you looking for? What do you want me to do for you? I think it's unavoidable that those questions are tapping into our desires, aren't they? And so I think as we read through the scriptures, we learn a few things about these deep desires that we have. Number one, God created us as feeling, desiring things. He made us that way. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a a mission. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate this earth into something. And I don't know how they would have done that in the absence of desire, that they wouldn't have gotten excited by that mission. We know, of course, the story takes a turn. But I believe that God created us this way. And I believe that our desires have something to tell us. They have messages for us. Now we have a choice. We can listen to that, to what they're trying to say, or we can try and stuff them away. The problem is they'll make themselves heard one way or another. And if we stuff them away, James talks about this, we'll get to it in just a second. If we try and stuff them away, they'll generally come out in other areas, at other moments, in other ways that are far less helpful than if we had just listened in the first place. God created us as feeling, desiring things. They Our desires have messages to tell us. If we ignore them, that's dangerous. And so, I believe that the answer is for us to listen. Sometimes this involves sort of following things that are going on in the surface of our lives, following them down a bit of a rabbit hole and saying, what's at the root of this? What's at the core of these feelings? And anybody who's done this, and even if you haven't, you can probably recognize that can be deeply unsettling. That can be a difficult, sometimes dangerous journey in and of itself. I wouldn't recommend that you do it alone. You need a community around you, I would argue. But when you go home this afternoon, if you want some homework, I know everyone's desperate for homework, a great passage that shows us this process is John chapter 4, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Because there's some things going on on the surface, and Jesus, through some questions and a few Uh, uh, revealing statements, begins to try and get beneath some of those things. And what we discover is a woman who's longing for security. For security, because through the number of relationships she's had, her status, her place in her community is extremely precarious. And so Jesus tries to draw out what's really going on there. We don't have more time to talk about this, I wish we did, but to the passage that Jerusha read for us a moment ago. James writes, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is verse 8. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, if you've read James's letter at all, you know he talks about this person, this disciple who experiences all of these different Uh, emotions and passions at war within them. Earlier on in the letter, in chapter 1, I think, he describes them as being tossed to and fro by the waves. And so this is his invitation when he says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Begin to narrow down those things and orient yourselves in one direction. Earlier on in the chapter, in uh, verses 1 to 3, as Jerusha read for us, he says this, What's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. But then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I believe James is getting at these very same ideas that we've been talking about, friends. I think James is suggesting, and I believe it's true too, that if we don't attend to these desires in our lives, we'll experience just chronic disappointment in life. We won't become the kinds of people that we want to be. We'll continually be sabotaging relationships, our relationship with God and others, the people around us. But if we humble ourselves, if we're willing to listen to those desires, perhaps follow them down to the root, I believe two amazing things can happen, okay, when we do that. The first is that we'll have a deeper communion with God. Now, again, that might seem strange and counterintuitive. Following these desires down to the core, how's that going to give me a deeper communion with God? Well, I think that at the core, this is going to sound very uh, um, Christianese or pastoral of me to say, but I believe it with all my heart, That at the core of all these desires, like, their true satisfaction, their true fulfillment is found in God. I really believe that. A friend of mine, uh, Aaron Goodrich, is a licensed therapist in in Michigan. He's also a pastor of a SOMA church there. And he's explained this to me um, in ways that I really needed him to. Uh, He talks about these core desires that we all have. That so much of the stuff going on on the surface can be traced back to. We long for security. Right? We want people to understand us and to still you know, stay with us when they understand us. We long for love, for affection, for belonging. We long for significance, for some sort of purpose in our lives. And all of these things, friends, find their truest fulfillment in our relationships with our Creator, with God. We find true security because Jesus is good And he will provide for us. He will satisfy us. He is in control at all times. We are secure. We find love because Jesus took all of my rejection that I was owed and earned the full approval of God. And so I am loved. And we find significance. Jesus performed perfectly. So I don't have to. But now, King Jesus offers me a role, a purpose in his kingdom. And so following our desires down to the root leads us back to God, I would argue. Because he's found at the heart of these things that we're longing for. But secondly, the second thing that happens if we're willing to do that somewhat scary journey is that we discover the spiritual practices in our lives that we really need. And these will be the ones, friends, that will stick because they're connecting to those deep heart-level desires. Ruth Haley Barton, we're, we're following uh, Ken Shigematsu's book, God and My Everything, which um, Sierra just held up a second ago. But another great book, if you're a reader and you, you want to read a few books, another great one is Ruth Haley Barton's uh, Sacred Rhythms. She says it this way, when we're in touch with our deepest longings, instead of just being completely distracted by their surface Manifestations, she says, a whole different set of choices opens up. Rather than being motivated by guilt and obligation, as in, I really ought to have a quiet time, or I really should pray more, we are compelled to seek out ways of living that are congruent with our deepest desires. So, following these things down to their root will actually begin to reveal to us the practices, the habits that. Interact there at that deepest heart level, and these are going to be the things that will stick in our lives, friends. So, what do we do then if we begin to discover some of these things the habits that not only do we really need but that we really want in our lives? Well, that's when this second ingredient comes in of discipline. Number one was desire, second is discipline. There are some who, like I said at the start of talking about desire, there are some of us who think, Well, desire doesn't play any part in me becoming more like Jesus. That's all discipline. There are some of us who wish that it was all desire and no discipline, right? If I just want this enough, then God will transform me into his likeness. Maybe you look at uh, saints in your life, Christians who have been following Jesus for many years. You look at them and you think, it looks pretty simple and carefree for them. So I, I guess just let go and let God, and he'll do the work. Maybe if you feel that way, I'd suggest that you're feeling the way I feel when I look at a gifted visual artist. I don't know if anyone's ever had the opportunity to watch like a gifted painter paint or a sculptor sculpt. You watch them and it's, it's, frankly, it's irritating because it looks like the simplest thing in the world. You think, yeah, I can do that, but then I can't. I feel this way, you know, some of these images draw out things in us and we imagine that maybe just this person has these This idea, this sort of deep swirling thing, and then they just, it just materializes on the page. One of the the images that does this for me is, uh, it's hard to see with the lights on, but this is Picasso's old man with guitar. Unsurprisingly, if you can see it all there, it comes from his blue period. The whole thing is blue, basically, except for the guitar. Um, Fun fact for you, little uh, scavenger hunt. A, A local cafe has this hung on the wall but they have it hung sideways. So he's lying down. Um, so there you go. You can find out where that is. There is no prize um, except for my approval, okay? Um, Picasso can, could do things like this that draw out these deep emotions from us, but there's a quote attributed to Picasso. He said, inspiration exists. And we say, yeah, of course it does, you, you jerk. Um, you can make things like that, But he says, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. That's Picasso's quote. Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. So when we face our deepest desires, when we trace them down to the root, which I believe will bring us closer to God, as we then discover some habits, some practices that we really need, we begin to structure our lives around those things. And this is where we get back to this term, this idea of a rule of life. Ken Shigematsu, in that book, MC Leaders, I hope you've grabbed a copy. Everyone else, I hope you do grab a copy. Again, pay, pay what you can. If you, have, if you don't have $5 to spare, please still take one. Um, we'll order more if we have to. He talks about uh, the fact that this word for rule, back in the, the Greek, was the same word family that uh, trellis came from. Trellis as in helping a vine to grow. He says, like a trellis, a rule of life supports and guides our growth. So if you hear that term, a rule of life, maybe you were getting excited as I talked about, uh, you know, following our desires down to the core. You're sort of already a right-brained person, and you got excited. And then you hear this term, rule of life, and you think, that sounds like a real buzzkill, you know, b- putting all these rules in my life. Don't get distracted by that term. It's not a, a box to contain us. It's a structure to promote our growth. Again, Shigematsu says this, I have found that living by a rule has paradoxically freed me to pursue the life that I have always longed for. And so as you do this, and we're going to be talking about this for the next number of weeks, friends, different practices that we would love you to try. As you do that, as you think about, okay, what's my plan for following Jesus? I want you know, and you try and bring some discipline into things, I want to encourage you with just three little notes, okay? If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. As you begin to inject some discipline, maybe you actually begin to form a plan. Some of us will write something down, and we'll want that and we'll need that, and others of us might never, ever write something down, but you can still have a plan. As you do that, I'd encourage you to remember three things. Be intentional. I think that's obvious, right? You must be intentional with your day, with your week, with your month. But while you're doing that, being intentional, be gracious. Every person that I've ever met, including myself, when we start to try and uh, practice some sort of rule of life, you radically overcommit, okay, (laughs) almost without fail. You think, I'm going to do x, y, z, and I'm going to do them all three times a day for half an hour each, and then it just doesn't go that way. So be gracious with yourself. Your Heavenly Father loves you and is gracious with you, so you can be gracious with yourself. Thirdly, be flexible. Because you're going to try out certain rhythms. You're going to think, I need this. I need this in my life. And you might find very little fruit from it. And then something else that you thought, well, that seems kind of goofy. Actually, the Spirit uses it in profound ways. So be flexible, be willing to change and adapt as you try things out. The third element that we need, though, begins with our desires what do we really want? how does that find fulfillment in God? What are the habits and practices that are going to really get at that? And then how can I bring some discipline in? How can I plan my life around those things? But the third thing we need is divine help. We need help. James 4, 8, that verse says it beautifully. He says, draw near to God. He's given us something to do. (laughs) Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I wonder when James wrote that if he was remembering that story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, right? Because as that son begins to return home, the, as Jesus told that story, while he was a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. I think that's a good picture of how this goes. God knows when you say, I'm going to read my Bible an hour a day. I'm going to get through the whole thing three times in a year, and then I will be like the super Christian. Um, And then it turns out to like, oh, wow, I did it twice. I read the Bible twice this week for, you know, five minutes each time. God sees you. He sees you making even feeble efforts to draw near to him. And he will close that distance. I really believe that, friends. Paul said it this way to the Philippians. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make a plan. Get to work. But you need to hear the next verse for it is god who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose as sam uh, i think you prayed this before the service as we were just getting ready she said she reminded us of that prayer that moses prayed when god was frustrated with the israelites and he said you know you can go but i'm i'm not going to be with you in the camp and moses said well we don't want to go then if we do this friends without god's presence meeting us in it then it's just like being busy and perhaps being frustrated that we're not doing more. But if God, God's presence shows up, that transforms everything. It transforms us, frankly. Let me close with a, a personal example, maybe, of how this might look for you. Examining our desires, connecting those to deep longings in our heart, putting some disciplines around that. I, like I'm sure many of you, Deeply desire to be less distracted, to be more present with my kids. Parents in the room, I'll, I'll confess this and, and just be really honest with you. I had one of those conversations the other day where my son was, Dallas, was wanting to uh, hang out and I was distracted and he said, why are you on your phone right now when we're just trying to hang out? Those are not things you like to hear as a parent. I have a deep desire, a deep desire to be more present with my kids, with my wife, with our staff, with all of you, and I feel myself distracted a lot. And so there are steps that I need to take in my life to be more present. These things that we're attached to need to have an earlier bedtime than I do. Desperately, I'm trying a a, a 24-hour time where I'm uh, really untethered from technology altogether come and ask me how that's going after the service, I'll be honest with you and uh, give you the, the mixed results. We're going to talk about Sabbath next week. But if we just go about our lives, if I just go about my life and think, yeah, I want to be more present, one day I will be leaving this earth and think, yeah, I didn't do a great job of that. But if I take some steps, then maybe God will meet me in that. He'll help me have a little bit more bandwidth Even at the end of a long day, for my kids who just want to be together with me. What we're going to do now, I'm going to invite Sam up. I'm going to pray. And then I'd encourage you uh, to take a few minutes and reflect. It would be easy, I suspect, for you to have something in the back of your mind or something sort of surfacing in your heart. And if I just sent you out the door, You'd go and get lunch and think, oh, thank goodness, I can, can, can keep going about my day or my week, and I don't have to think too much about that. You might force me to next Sunday when I'm back. But don't, don't neglect to tend to these things, friend, friends. As we said earlier on, if we don't tend to them, they'll make themselves heard in really often unhelpful, even painful ways. What's going on in your heart? What are these deep desires that exist in your life right now? If you think, here's some of the things going on, but I don't even know how to what, to, what to do with these, how to untangle them, then come back next week and the week after, and hopefully we'll do some of that work together. If you're in a missional community, bring some of that to them, to your DNA. Say, oh, here's some things, and I, I'm even uncomfortable saying it, but these are things going on in my heart. But spend some of that time now. We'll just take a few minutes, uh, and then we will sing. And then I'll come up and close this. But let me pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, you are our counselor, and so you can reveal, you can help us see these parts of our hearts that maybe we... um, try and keep kind of tucked away or not think about too much but I'm grateful that you're also called our our comforter and so as we're looking at things that maybe we don't understand, things that frustrate us, maybe things that we're embarrassed about you will stand with us you know us perfectly and we are still loved loved So today, and over the next number of days, would we begin to explore these, these longings that we have and how they might, at the root, bring us back to you? And would you help us then to find practices, habits that we can bring into our lives that will really speak to those deep heart desires? Lead us, Spirit, we pray.